0: My name is Amanda Van Annen. Welcome to Beauty and the Beat. Join me and my co hosts Betsy Zane and Sophia Brad as we pierce beyond the beauty myth and get face to face with reality. Highs and lows of fashion to the challenges of motherhood, the traumas of life heartbreak of relationships gone wrong, and how to find purpose and discover your true authentic self. Hi guys, it's Amanda again. And today I've got someone who I've been waiting to have on the show for a while because She's just amazing, amazing, amazing personal development expert. Today, I've got Thais Gibson, and she is a personal development expert, author, and teacher who has worked with thousands of clients across the globe to help them transform their life, relationships, and overcome substantial challenges. She's certified in over thirteen different therapeutic techniques, including cognitive behavioral therapy, neurolinguistic programming hypnosis, somatic experiencing, and more. She has created and tested cutting-edge approaches to healing all areas of your life that are truly long-lasting and results-oriented. This is because she recognizes that for real change to exist, it must take place at the subconscious level. Thais, I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to Beauty and the Beat. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So a question I normally have for my guests at the beginning of the show is tell us a bit about yourself. And mostly I'm interested in your journey. Is this something you've always wanted to do or what was the journey that got you here?
1: Yeah. So I would say part of why I'm probably so motivated and in love with all of the personal development sort of work is because it was really personal for me. So I started off, I was an athlete growing up and really wanted to get a soccer scholarship and go to the US. I'm, I'm natively from Toronto. And basically, my one of my major scouting years, I had a knee surgery, like a really bad injury. And I got addicted to my painkillers. And it was like right before my 15th birthday. And I didn't even really know like what addiction was or, or too much about it. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a position where not only was i having a really hard time sort of going back when i would run out of them to sober life but i was actively seeking them out and found a girl at my school who would sell them and and this whole thing and i was you know a kid like very very young and it was sort of like this lonely road because i had this idea that what i was doing wasn't good or healthy but i was very much pulled into that world and and way of living and so it became this sort of battle inside of myself for a long time, because I remember going through my first set of withdrawals and being like, what is this? Like, am I sick? Like what's going on? And not even really knowing what was happening. And so it opened up this chapter of my life. And and it was, I struggled with almost daily use for the better part of about seven years and tried a whole bunch of stuff. I did inpatient rehab and outpatient rehab and nothing was really working. And I had this, you know, it was fairly high functioning and I still ended up going and, playing soccer and going off to school. And I had this student in one of my classes one day when I was talking about how it's so hard to like change our habits and break our habits. And he said, well, yeah, because the subconscious mind always overpowers the conscious mind. So the conscious mind like can't win. And as somebody who'd gone through pretty much torment for the better part of seven years, telling myself every day, like, this is the last time I won't do this again. And, you know, trying all these different things to escape this. Really self defeating cycle that I was locked into. He explained it in one sentence to me. It was like, Oh, the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. So I realized like my conscious mind is the one going, This is it. This is the last day. This is the last time. And my subconscious mind is like, No, we have stored pain and we're going to keep working to avoid that pain. And so what I really realized is A, for change to take place, it has to engage the subconscious mind in the process. And B, a lot of why I was addicted to painkillers is because I had a lot of sorts of conscious emotional pain from childhood and a whole bunch of little different traumas I went through that I definitely hadn't resolved or made peace with. And so that sort of opened up a pathway for me to embark on. And I went down that pathway, like wholeheartedly, probably got a little bit addicted to learning things like meditation and all these different things about sort of understanding and engaging and observing the mind. And that really opened things up for me in terms of my healing process. And so as soon as I started figuring out there's a different way, you know, I, I went, stayed back in school, did a master's degree in transpersonal psychology and then just kept learning and learning and certifying because I was trying to sort of bridge this gap between like different sort of spiritual things that I was learning and things about hypnosis and the subconscious and then also like our practical western model of how we deal with things and so it became this like very powerful journey and I was blessed enough to heal and and then open to practice started working with others and that filled up very very at the, about a two-year wait list for a while and then ended up going into building a school and, and now we have an online personal development school for people.
0: Yeah, I mean, your story is very interesting. And I checked out your school online and I looked through a lot of the courses you offer. To be honest, I think I might be joining your school <laughs> myself. <laughs> I was like, oh God, I could do with some of this. Even though I've gone through a lot of that, I've never actually got the qualifications like you have. You know, you actually became a clinical psychologist you have got all these qualifications. And, you know, you believe a lot in spirituality. So one of the first things I want to ask... Just to make
1: a quick correction too, it's not, I'm not quite a clinical psychologist, a personal psychologist. So it's sort of like, yeah, just, okay. just in case,
0: just just very
1: in case. similar, yeah. but a little bit different.
0: Okay. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is where spirituality meets psychology. Because you know, a lot of people look at it as two different things people think, oh, spirituality, it's all mumble jumble. It's all about meditation and this. And so what I want to talk about, so our listeners can hear, is about the connection between psychology and spirituality and how the two are related.
1: Yeah, I love that. So, you know, this was something that was really profound for myself because quite honestly, like until I was really doing things like meditating for three, four hours a day, like really opening myself up to spiritual stuff, I wasn't having a lot of results in my healing journey. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily everybody's story or experience. A lot of people do well with like, our typical way of of approaching things. But for myself, it was like, I'm not able to get sober without some kind of different approach here. And so You know of course there's different components of spirituality and psychology very much and of course there's so many different interpretations about spirituality or religion but i found very fundamental principles that helped me personally and these were things like number one meditating and i think meditation one of the things that it does from a psychological perspective is it gives you the capacity to observe your own mind And like, we get so identified with our thoughts and so identified with our emotions throughout the day. And we sort of live through this filter of our subconscious programming. And when we practice meditation, like one of the big things that comes out of that is sort of disidentification, like we observe instead of identify with. And if you pay close attention, like you can't witness something and be possessed by it at the same time. So if you are possessed by your thinking, you're kind of living through your thoughts. And you might be telling yourself some story about how this person's bad, or they wronged you, or you can't trust them or whatever it is. But when you start disidentifying and observing, you start noticing these thoughts, noticing these patterns. And it isn't until we observe things and and meditation is largely your conscious mind sort of observing these subconscious patterns that are running and subconscious programs. And it isn't until we do that, that we actually have the capacity to really work through these things and to really start reframing cognitively what our perceptions are and things like this. And it's so interesting because when you overlap some of these things with things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which has a lot to do with questioning our stories with trying to ask ourselves, like, are these projections that I'm making or assumptions that I'm making about people or myself, are they really ultimately true? we can't do a lot of that work unless we have some kind of component of disidentification first until we have some kind of component of being able to witness ourselves and notice our thinking. So there's very fundamental principles. I think some big ones that overlap are, you know, meditation, I think forgiveness and practicing forgiveness and self-forgiveness and really humanizing ourselves and being able to see our innocence. Like when we do make a mistake, it's so easy to guilt and shame ourselves and like sort of reenact The punishment reward system on ourselves like we got punished for doing things wrong so now we have to punish ourselves, and I think forgiveness and compassion and these sorts of things that are fundamentally spiritual principles play a major role in us being able to psychologically heal.
0: I liked what you talk about meditating, forgiveness, and compassion, but one thing I know that happens a lot to most of us is when we have those self defeating thoughts or patterns we can't identify them because we're so deeply in it that we don't even know it's happening to us. <laughs> so I know it's easy as we are talking here to say, yeah, once you've identified your patterns and then you do this and, but for most people going through this type of stuff, they can't even identify. Can them. I give a
1: process for people? Yeah. Okay. So, so this is one of the most beautiful things about us as humans so our emotions are always feedback. They are absolutely 0% of the time random. And so we spend a lot of time going through life thinking like, oh, I'm having a bad day or I'm upset and it's not fair or things like this, but like it's always fair and there's nothing random about our emotions. So our emotions are always giving us feedback for one of two things. Number one, we have pain, emotional pain, which represents unmet needs in our lives. So for example, if I feel Let's say I'm in quarantine and let's pretend I live alone and you know there's all this isolation, I'm probably gonna have pain, the pain of loneliness or the pain of not feeling connected because I have a fundamental basic human need for love and connection, just like every other human being. And so pain is there to help us grow and evolve. It's always giving us feedback when a need is out of alignment from being met. And then we have suffering and suffering is the story we tell about the pain. So for example, let's say, somebody goes through a breakup, they have that love and connection need not being met as much as it was because there's a relationship transition happening. And they make that mean, oh, it's because I'm not good enough. It's because, you know, oh, I'm going to be alone forever now. I'm never going to find somebody again. And those are the stories we create. So the really beautiful thing is that if we want to find our patterns, our emotions are always going to tell us when something is out of alignment. And what they're actually, in fact, doing is emotions are there to help us make the subconscious content conscious. And so what we can ask ourselves is when we feel bad and we want to find the patterns as to why we're feeling bad and we want to source them, we can ask ourselves, okay, what painful stories have I been telling myself recently? And we have to check in and really question those stories because we spend a lot of time telling ourselves things that are absolutely not true. Or what unmet needs do I currently have in my life right now? And if we can change our thinking and meet our needs, we don't stay in suffering.
0: So that was really profound. If we can change our thinking and meet our needs, we don't stay in suffering. So it's about changing how we think and then trying to meet our needs now what's the process of changing how you think I mean I know there must be several yes yes yes.
1: (laughs) I get so excited to talk about this stuff okay so I'm going to give like a little bit of a background part so we all go through life through the system of classical conditioning aka we all go through trauma because the number one inference people make when they're being conditioned or socialized or you know really what that means is like punished for doing things wrong and rewarded for doing things right for listeners who might not be familiar what happens is we get the emotional inference that love is conditional so we come in and we are wired for attachment, we're wired for love and connection, we come in as basically unconditionally loving beings to our parents and caregivers. And then when love is withheld or we are punished, even though of course like that's part of the system we have to go through, because we probably need to be punished if we're gonna run out into the street in a busy street as a child, Like we need to know these things. To protect us but what we learn is like oh my goodness i'm unconditionally loving and i'm getting punished so love is based on not who i am but what i do and how i obey and so we all go through this sort of trauma as we go through the socialization system now what happens is the subconscious mind is really wired to like get imprinted and hold on to things that are bad and in fact it holds on to bad things significantly more than good emotional experiences because historically, if a predator was chasing us by that tree over there, we really want to remember that bad, scary experience so that we don't go near the tree again. So our brain is is designed this way. But then what happens is we go through life and we keep getting imprinted by bad experiences and we give those things meaning. And those those pieces of meaning become the beliefs we carry about ourselves. So for example, if mom is critical, I might make that mean that I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough. If dad is inconsistent, I might make that mean that I'm unlovable or I'm unworthy in some way, right? So we we have all these different pieces of meaning. Now these pieces of meaning or beliefs about ourselves are like tree trunks. And they, those are our beliefs. And then our thoughts spring off of that tree trunk and those are sort of like the tree branches. So we might go, okay, I'm not good enough, and then our tree branches or our thoughts connected to those beliefs might be things like, I'm not smart enough, I'm not attractive enough, I'm not funny enough or interesting enough. Thoughts produce emotions, okay? How do you feel when you're actually thinking those things? And those are like the tree leaves in a way. So beliefs produce thoughts, which produce emotions, and neuroscience has proven that every single decision we make is based on our emotions. So even people who are like, oh, I'm so logical and rational in my thinking, no. They're making emotionally-based decisions at the tipping point, and then they're just quickly rationalizing through logic. So we're not in charge of our beliefs, we're not in charge of our actions, and on top of that, our emotions are made up of neurochemicals. So our neurochemistry is largely determined by this huge filter or paradigm of subconscious beliefs we're building our entire life. Now, when we have painful thoughts, what they're coming from is painful beliefs we carry. And so when we wanna change our painful thoughts, We have to recognize, number one, our emotions and actions, actions we take that we don't like, or painful emotions we have are telling us, hey, you're thinking not so great things about yourself. And what we have to be able to do is, number one, source that thought specifically. So if I'm feeling sad and I'm like, oh, what have I been thinking about today? And maybe I was thinking about how quarantine, I'm gonna be isolated forever, I'm gonna be alone forever, you know, and our brain likes to think in these extremes, And what we have to be able to do is source those thoughts or patterns of thought, like, okay, what types of thoughts was I having that led to this? And can I 100% know that this is true? And we have to be able to question that and then look for evidence to counteract it. So why might I not be alone forever? Why might I be able to be okay in this quarantine? So we change our thinking by reframing our thoughts, by really questioning and looking for proof of the opposite. And that's how we equilibrate. We stop thinking in extremes or polarities. And then we ask ourselves, okay, and what do I need to feel relief right now? So change your thinking, meet your needs. So then maybe your need is, I need to feel connection in some way. And maybe I can do that by reaching out to more people or having more zoom calls with friends or doing things over the phone that that give me some kind of connection. So it's like, Can you source your thoughts, change your thinking, meet your needs? And by doing that over time, repetition actually reprograms your beliefs, which means those thoughts will stop coming back to that same degree as well.
0: I really agree with that because I've practiced some of that myself, but the hard part in a lot of this is I feel like changing the thinking part can be really difficult because people are sometimes have this cocoon. It could be a cocoon of fear or a cocoon of what are people going to say if I start calling them regular, you know, because limiting beliefs are so ingrained that it's almost like you have to push them and put them aside. So apart from meditation, what other ways would you say people can, you know, just help them get the fear away? Like, put the fear aside. Because I find when we're trying to change our thought patterns, one thing that really happens is we go into our fear mode, because it's new. And the limiting beliefs have taken over. So we're like, you know, I've had experiences with, I've had friends who have been through similar stuff. And I can recognize it because, you know, I had a friend who everybody, in her mind, she thought they hated her. If we went out, she'd be like, oh, those people are no good. Why are you talking to them? You know, it was always like that. And she was so defensive. And I tried for many years saying, no, why don't you give them a chance, get to know them. That, And it was tough.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the big reasons that it's tough for people is because, this A, like you said, the subconscious mind wants familiarity. And the subconscious mind, like from a spiritual perspective, is basically like the ego mind, Right and the ego wants to like hold on to everything for dear life. So there's that component, but the subconscious mind doesn't speak the language of thinking. There's no like actual linguistic language that it speaks. It speaks the language of emotion and imagery. So when when we have these thought patterns and they're popping up and they're loud and they're painful, when we try to debunk them just with thinking, what happens is it's like you're trying to speak a different language to your own subconscious mind and so it's like not computing right and that's also why it can feel so defeating because somebody's like no they don't hate you come on and and you're like no they hate and you feel that and that's your subconscious program and so that's why your friend probably experienced that so the way to hack this is literally when you are equilibrating and this is also why like affirmations don't work unless you do them properly and that's a whole thing out in here you can't change feeling with thought you change feeling with feeling and imagery so what we have to do is we have to look for evidence so for example in your friend's case you would say something like look think of this friend who likes you and think of the way they looked at you the other day and the way they gave you that hug and what happens is all memory is colored with emotion so when you give a specific memory or instance she in her mind sees the image of that friend hugging her, feels the emotion that's encoded in it, and all of a sudden you're actually speaking to her subconscious, which is where that program originates in the first place. And so unless you change feeling with feeling and imagery, just by telling people, oh, question your thoughts and that's it, without the evidence, it doesn't do anything. And that's also why affirmations don't work sometimes for people is because you can say anything in language, but you're still speaking a totally different language than your subconscious mind does, which is where you're trying to change the program. So whenever we're trying to reprogram anything, we have to look for memory, like specific pieces of evidence in pictures, like think of how the person hugged you, how the person looked at you, like get specific in time and the more feeling we have in those images the better so that time that your friend went way out of their way and it meant so much to you you feel that more than the time that your friend gave you a quick call back and that was still nice too but the more evidence and the more feeling encoded in that evidence that's how we actually transform
0: Okay, I like that. I like the feeling and the evidence part and everything. And I don't know if you know about Dr. Joe Dispenser.
1: Oh, of course, yeah. I didn't and, like uh,
0: you know, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I follow him, I listen to a lot of his books, do his meditations, and and for me, it's something that's familiar to me because I've worked on myself for a long time. I've visualized, I've manifested things in my life bigger than I thought. So when I met the work of dr joe i felt like oh my god this is speaking to me and that's exactly what you're talking about now it's that kind of visualizing finding an experience or something that you can relate to and getting the feeling like really feeling it and making it happen how would you advise people to go about a daily practice of doing this if i was to advise someone a listener now that is in a position where they're thinking, you know, I want to have that mindset. Would you tell them to meditate every day for like five, 10 minutes?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say 100%. The first thing to know is that everything will follow your programs. So as soon as you believe that you're good enough, you're going to feel good enough and then you're going to more likely act good enough, right? And then opportunities will come. If you believe you're worthy, then you're going to feel like you can express your worth or communicate and ask for things and then things will follow from there. So a big part of what's very important is that we give ourselves the opportunity. And research shows it takes 21 days, especially when thoughts are being laced with feelings and images to reprogram. And so Dr. Joe spends a lot of his work is literally just based on like very simple scientific principles when it comes to the subconscious mind, like him, Dr. Bruce Lipton, like a lot of them. They've just done a little bit of hypnosis research, and that's what they're basing off of. They're just speaking the language of the subconscious, and from there, everything else begins to flow.
0: When I'm doing any of the meditations and stuff, and I remember also once upon a time, I also was it Paul McKenna, and he's a neurolinguistic programmer. Okay, yeah. I use this thing called Change Your Life in Seven Days. Oh. And literally it was neuro-linguistic programming twice a day in the evening before you go to bed first thing in the morning. And every time I do that, everything changes. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything changes. I've tried that thing about three different okay times in my life where I just do it for a seven day run and everything changes. Wow. My life. Yeah. Like things start to change.
1: And things that people should know too, is that like the, you just said this and it's such an important point. Like, the last hour or so before you go to bed, and the first hour you wake up, your subconscious mind is super suggestible. So it's producing brain waves that make you like way more open to basically self-hypnosis in a way. And, and there's a tool called auto-suggestion, which is probably what he's using. And it's literally like you visualizing, thinking, feeling imagining right things that you want to create in that last hour or in that first hour and giving your mind those suggestions and feedback and it really permeates sort of that subconscious barrier
0: so one thing i was looking at you have this course where people can join your personal development school and there are various programs they can join so i wrote a few of them down i want you to give us a bit of insight into them one of them was rebuilding trust and overcoming jealousy. Yeah. So talk so, a bit about that. Yeah.
1: So a lot of what we talk about in the school and sort of like some of these things that are, they're based off of is our different attachment styles. So like different attachment styles, I have to share a little bit about this to connect it to trust and jealousy, but basically like we all have a different way we attach to our caregivers in childhood. And you sort of can compare your specific personal attachment style to like you going into the world and trying to play a board game with other people, but you have a different rule book. Like obviously you're going to have friction and pain points and challenges. And so our individual attachment style is basically our personal rule book for how we relate to others. And there's specific attachment styles, namely a fearful avoidant attachment style that struggles the most with trust. And part of what we talk about is when you are this person or when you just literally in general have trust wounds or issues, we can reprogram what our actual trust pain points are. And largely what happens is because we go through experiences and then things penetrate the subconscious mind and we form those things like as beliefs. When we have a challenge or struggles with trust, it's because we have painful beliefs about people. So we believe all men can't be trusted or all women can't be trusted or relationships. People always cheat or people will get bored. And we have these specific personal beliefs. And so what that course does is it really helps us to identify what our internal personal beliefs are about trust so we can reprogram our trust baseline. And then a really important secondary part of trusting is the people who struggle most with trusting others are also the people who usually betray their own trust the most and so it's like a shadow and so basically what happens is if those people look very closely sometimes they're betraying their own boundaries they're not speaking up for their needs they're not authentically expressing their feelings to others they're always putting themselves last or people pleasing and putting everybody first and so then we have these like internal pieces of damaged trust we have in the relationship to ourselves because we don't trust ourselves to show up for our own boundaries and to speak up consistently with everybody in our lives. And then that makes us trust people even less. So part of like how to reprogram trust means identifying those core beliefs and wounds. And that's what that course goes through is this big list of what those things are. And then being able to work to reprogram those wounds using specific subconscious reprogramming tools. And then also being able to repair any broken trust we have in the relationship to ourselves in terms of boundaries, expressing needs, showing up consistently being vulnerable, sharing our feelings, these sorts of things. And when you do those two things, trust skyrockets in our relationships.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how There's trust issues can be a big thing in our relationships and friendships. But that said, another thing you talk about in one of the courses is post-traumatic growth. And I always say trauma is, you know, I feel like trauma is the biggest, the one biggest issue that affects people the most, because most people say, no, I've got, I've got no trauma, but I feel like there are a few people that probably have relatively less trauma But a lot of times people growing up, their parents can cause them traumatic situations because of their trauma. And it becomes becomes this thing where, you know, it becomes generational if you don't take care of it at some point, because you then end up doing the same to your children, who end up doing to their children. And you have a course called post-traumatic growth. Tell me a bit about that.
1: Yeah. So you're exactly right. Everybody goes through trauma. It is on a continuum. So some people go through small traumas, like we were talking about earlier, like the classical conditioning system is traumatic in and of itself. But then just like you said, like people pass down trauma, and there's generational trauma. And people, parents don't mean to pass down trauma, but they parent according to what they know. And a lot of the programming gets passed down. And so when we look at the principles of post-traumatic growth, there's a lot of research done on post-traumatic growth in general. And some of the things are you know, what helps people feel like they actually not just survive from a trauma but thrive after a trauma are things like did you find some kind of greater connection to yourself because of that or did you build that out did you find some kind of greater connection to other people so important people came into your life like a teacher a therapist a mentor a friend you know something like that and and you reached out and you allowed yourself to be vulnerable did you find a greater connection to something bigger than yourself Did you change the stories you made up about yourself because of the trauma? So maybe you got abused. Let's say Bob got abused and he made that mean I'm weak. Did he change those beliefs and find his strength and recognize how strong he was for surviving that? Right. So did we change our perception? And then are we able to take the needs that we didn't get met at the time of trauma and then meet those needs in the relationship to ourselves? And so what trauma, I think, asks of us, if we want to truly heal, is to reverse engineer those ingredients that are studied and demonstrated to show up in people who actually do thrive after trauma. And how can we intentionally create those things in our lives? So how can we go back and change the painful stories we have, identify the needs that we really needed to have met that we didn't? So maybe we need, we needed you know, emotional support. Great. If I didn't meet that then... I'm gonna start getting that for myself now or I'm gonna reach out to people who can also provide that for me, right? And then I'm gonna make sure that I have connection. I find meaning. I find something to connect to greater than myself. And so I think really trauma can be, it's not fun and I'm not taking away from people who've been through trauma, but you know I've been through quite a bit of trauma myself and it's like, it requests from you after you go through it, that you do those things for yourself. And in doing that, we can look back
0: on a traumatic event and become better because of it. One thing you've said, which I noticed, which was really important is, you know, when you talk about trauma and you talk about finding out what it is that you were missing or that you're yearning for and trying to recreate that, be it in friendships or new relationships. That made me realize the point that some people actually keep on going for the thing that keeps opening the wound rather than finding the thing to heal the wound. 100%. And we call this,
1: this is talked about a lot in this course. It's called traumatization. And it's this idea that because the subconscious mind goes through a trauma and it goes, well, I survived, so that worked. So if you survive the trauma by freezing and never opening up, your subconscious actually associates that painful coping mechanism, which actually ends up limiting you long term as being the thing that made you survive because you did survive the trauma. And then it actually works very hard to reinforce that painful coping mechanism. I see. Yeah. And so part of what we have to do is we have to go in there and be like, what needs did I not get met? And how can I meet those things for myself? What painful stories did I tell? How can I change those stories? And we have to actually break the cycle of re-traumatization. And one of the biggest, like, clearest examples of this is kids who get really emotionally neglected growing up. What do they do? They like absolutely do not feel their feelings, repress their feelings at all costs. And they're in a great state of emotionally neglecting themselves. And then, of course, that makes them not have the capacity to emotionally be there for others. So they emotionally neglect others and the cycle continues. And so the big things we're missing, that emotional support or connection or whatever pain points we have from it, it is our job to become our own parents and to
0: reparent those things and heal those things for ourselves. Yeah. And I've also seen, you know, when you talk about kids and, you know, not being able to have that emotion due to traumatic experience, I've also seen the opposite where people have experienced such trauma, but they tend to be the total opposite. They give so much of themselves and they become the doormat and then they feel judged. Then they feel bad because no one's giving them back. But as you said earlier, they're not placing boundaries and finding the right people. Exactly, you know, that
1: can be because as a child, they never were shown that boundaries were okay, or they had to be boundaryless to survive their environment, Mm -hmm. or they had to people please because mom and dad were already so crazy with their stuff, that it was like, I better just like people please them so I avoid more chaos. And so everything that we take from our childhood events, we usually end up recreating in in relationship to self or like really critical parents. You can guarantee that child grows up to have really critical internal dialogue. And so we internalize all this stuff because it's our subconscious comfort zone. It's familiar. And like healing is we become our own parents and give ourselves the things that we didn't get.
0: So what would you say? There's another thing I believe in. I also believe apart from the trauma that happens to people during childhood or growing up, I feel like people can carry trauma through their genes because I'm beginning to realize that on a spiritual level, I started to think, well, if you look like your parents, so you bear their resemblance, you must carry over some sort of trauma that they've had along with some memory. And I think that's why people have things like deja vu or, you know, they say I had a dream and I don't understand it because I think we carry memories even from our great grandfathers sometimes or our great because mm-hmm. we look like them, don't we? So so must there, be-
1: yeah, yeah. There's literally like from like a spiritual perspective, people like ancestral trauma things like this. Like if you look at the cutting edge research in epigenetics, I like love learning about spiritual things and then searching the like scientific like what's going. on. But like epigenetics talks about this and how literally we carry emotional memory in through cellular memory through you know in our genome we have like certain things that are, are activated and somebody named dr rupert sheldrake has something two, it's sort of similar and it's really interesting. And it talks about how we there's something called morphic resonance and he studies how like if you see birds and they all fly and they move together at the same time, how like people were sort of entangled with, we tend to sort of share and and have emotions come in. And then on top of that, just from like a purely subconscious perspective, we pick up. So we are like sponges. We are picking up most of our life. Ninety five to ninety seven percent is lived through our subconscious mind. And so when we go through life and we grow up and we're around parents, even like little mannerisms or little emotions that we pick up from them, all these different things, they become so deeply patterned into our subconscious and nervous system that they are so likely to become our own patterns as well. So, yeah.
0: And I found that really interesting because I thought, you know, people are carrying trauma. I mean, they could be good memories too from their parents or generations before and they don't even know it and they don't realize why they're behaving like they are. So the first question I think is, When things are not working out i feel people should be asking this themselves the question what can i do different or how can i change this and that's a question that's not asked enough
1: and i think that every single thing and i really truly believe this and it's a great way it's a great way to live i think every single thing that we don't like we have to ask ourselves like what is the lesson what is this showing me And how can I grow from this experience? And if you look at things that way, because all negative emotions are just feedback, which really technically means that everything that makes us feel bad is just feedback. And so there's either a part of our personality that's holding on to something that's not healthy and we can become aware of it, or there's something we can learn from and grow from during this event. So if we keep asking ourselves, like, what is this showing me? How can I learn? How can I grow? we get to evolve so much more quickly and we don't waste time on like unnecessary storytelling and suffering about what it means that life isn't going perfectly according (laughs) to plan (laughs) And, and the ego mind wanting to reinforce itself and sort of play God
0: on, on all of our experiences. The thing I think people should also realize is also sometimes with change comes a lot of change. Like, Sometimes you've got to clear out your friendships. You've got to form new friendships that are supportive because some people get so caught in the, what would other people think about me? What would this happen? Why would I do that? I, Where they end up not healing themselves. They're just so caught up in everything else. And I feel like sometimes when you go into a state where you want to heal or something, sometimes there are friendships that you have to either get rid of or you have to put aside, or you have to create boundaries with those friends. There's a lot of different facets to your life. And I believe when you want to change your life on any level, you just have to change habits, yeah, which absolutely. is what you talked about earlier. Now, another thing I was going to ask you about was, which I found really interesting was one of your courses on overcoming loneliness and creating fulfilling connections. We live in a world today where there are like 7 billion people. A lot of people are lonely, lonely. A lot. A lot. People can't find relationships. People want to get into a relationship. I live in Los Angeles, for example, where no one, I mean, in LA in particular, where almost no one's in a relationship. Everyone's single. Everyone says they want a relationship. Everyone wants something fulfilling, yet no one is actually doing it or willing to put the work into it. So, and, you know, there's other ways to be lonely. You know, there are people that are really successful, but they don't have people to connect with yeah. on an emotional or personal level. You can be lonely just by, you know, you can have friends, but you might not be able to tell them things that are going on in your life. And that's even a, a sort of loneliness because you have to go through. 100%.
1: You know. So loneliness, they're now calling an epidemic. And the impact loneliness is having on like suicide rates is crazy. The UK appointed like a loneliness minister, like all types of people across the world are doing like damage control. There's a, a loneliness helpline in California. Like all these different things are happening because it's actually having such a huge impact on people. And so it's interesting cause you met, you sort of hit the nail on the head. Like loneliness isn't coming from a lack of people. Loneliness is coming from a lack of quality of connection. And the lack of quality is because our fears that we have, our fear-based programs about people, our limiting beliefs about vulnerability and our painful experiences of vulnerability in the past. And so literally what loneliness is created by is largely by our limiting beliefs about connection, our inability to understand our own needs and relationships and communicate them to others our own inability to not express our boundaries. And then we just feel resentful and we feel like people don't see us and hear us and understand us when we don't see, hear and understand our own feelings and needs and we don't express them or we're boundaryless people. And so what we have to look at when we're trying to overcome loneliness is what are our needs from people? Can we get really specific and communicate those things vulnerably? What are our limiting beliefs about people and situations? What are the points of ourselves that we shame? And so we keep private. And as soon as we have like, Parts of ourselves that we're shaming or repressing or hiding, we ultimately for sure do not feel unconditionally loved because we feel like we are loving ourselves and only showing ourselves with condition. And so we have to be able to reprogram our painful beliefs and start expressing our needs, sharing our feelings, and ultimately that creates better qualities of connection, which then positively impacts how we feel in terms of our relationships.
0: And you start attracting better people as well, right? Oh my goodness, of course,
1: because then we can hold that space for other people as well and hear their needs and see them fully and, and give that same kind of energy in return. And that creates really beautiful connections. And it's interesting too, because if you look at like um a lot of people who will stay single and claim that they want to be in relationships the two biggest attachment styles, there's like these attachment styles that people have. One is fearful avoidant and one is dismissive avoidant. And both of these individuals grow up in household where there's either trauma or emotional neglect. And so if you go through either of those things as a child, then you don't feel safe being vulnerable with people. Like your your deep subconscious programs about people are like, oh, I can't, you know, show too much or speak up too much. And so then we want love consciously or we want connection, but then our subconscious is too busy trying to protect us from it. And so that plays a huge role as well.
0: Or oh, there's the other part where people go through all that and they do find love, but then they end up sabotaging it. Because yeah. they
1: not familiar it's not a comfort zone and if we have painful beliefs that it's not safe because it's not familiar and familiarity equals safety so that's what the subconscious is focused on so we believe it's not familiar it's not safe if we believe that we're not deserving because we have an unworthiness core belief that we haven't cleaned up then what we'll do ultimately is we'll work to push it away because it doesn't feel good
0: and it's so 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 important it's just amazing that when you think it's that simple, yes, it's so complex yes. because <laughs> it's just your beliefs. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> change your beliefs and change your life. But it's so complex because it's so hard to do.
1: Yeah. You know? And once we have, I think there's just a lack of resources. Like, mm-hmm. if you sit down and you're like, I'm going to change the belief I'm unworthy, all you have to do is like every day in the morning and evening, Find 10 to 15 pieces of evidence, cause evidence in the imagery for why you are worthy and just pick like specific images that elicit an emotional response. If you do that for 21 days, your beliefs change. But what happens is people don't know that they're subconscious. Like if nobody's teaching this in like the traditional Western system of healthcare and psychology, I call it, like, I mean, some people I'm sure, but very limited and we're not taught this in school or anything. So instead we just grow up as like the prisoners of our own programming. But as soon as you isolate your beliefs and you do that reprogramming work and you commit, like you said, you did the seven day thing with with the guy and you said like everything changed. So it's absolutely possible.
0: Yeah, and I think an important thing for listeners out there is, and I know this being spiritual myself, is even when you're on the path, you have to continue. It's like an athlete. Because sometimes you can slip back, especially when you go through a traumatic experience in life or something, you know, you start trying to hold on to those old emotions like, oh, my God, you know, everything's not working the way I think it should. And you start, you can start digging that hole again, even though you've got out of it. So I think any spiritual, you know, practice or personal development practice has to be a constant thing. A hundred percent. in of your life, like exercise, you know? A hundred
1: percent. And it's like, you, you don't go to the gym and like exercise and feel fit and feel good about yourself and then be like, I made it. I'm going to eat donuts every day now for the rest of my life and just give up exercise. Like you have to do maintenance work. And the same thing happens for personal growth. It's like, you get to a point where you might feel really happy. And then it's like, you have to, there are no idle thoughts. Every thought creates a little tiny bit of a program and a little tiny neural pathway. And we have to keep reinforcing the ones we want. And we have to make sure that we don't give any
0: attention to the ones we don't want so that they can atrophy over time. So we're creating new neural pathways. That's the main thing. That's the main, main thing because with new neural pathways come new thoughts and with new thoughts come new actions. And with new actions, you know, there's something you start attracting new experiences and your life changes. So that is so, so interesting. At this point in the show, I want you to tell us a bit about your courses and what you offer and where people can find you. So you can find us at
1: personaldevelopmentschool.com. And um, we have about 35 different courses right now on everything from like boundaries to how to reprogram your subconscious mind, to how to emotionally regulate and feel in charge of your emotions. We have a ton about relationships and attachment styles because they impact like our relationships way more than anything else. Literally, like research has proven. And so we talk about reprogramming. If you have an insecure attachment style, all those different things. And then trust, jealousy, post-traumatic growth, you name it. And I add two new courses a month. And then I do four live webinars a week for about an hour, hour and a half. So there's lots of time for people to have their questions answered. We have a beautiful community and an online chat channel for people to like connect during quarantine and just all the crazy stuff. And then I put on um, daily content out on YouTube that's free, and it's Personal Development School Thais Gibson, and you can dive into there as well. And and um, there's lots of resources and information there also. Yeah,
0: because that's really good. I mean, I was looking at some of your YouTube videos, and I was like, oh. You know, there's a lot there. There's a lot. (laughs) And people need it now, especially. And I think, and I looked at your courses online and they're very reasonably priced, you know. So I think anybody, you know, if you're thinking of changing your life, you should, you know, take a look at what Thais is is offering because there's a big offering there. And I always think if, when it comes to transforming our lives or changing our lives, it's worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: And when there's stuff we're stuck with, if we do the inner work yeah, first,
0: everything feels like it opens up before mm-hmm.
1: it's a Beautiful thing. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for coming. I'm
1: beautiful. Thank you so much.
0: You. <laughs> thank you very, very much. And guys, until next time, when we'll be having another guest, you know where to find Thais. You know, it's personal development school. Yes.com. Yes. Yeah. And I think you should go over there because she's got a lot of um, free content on there as well, as well as on her YouTube channel. And until next time, it's me, Amanda. Stay safe and stay, you know, positive.